Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, uh, our focus today will be on patient engagement and behavior change, particularly through the approach of uh, design. And we are so fortunate to have a guest on our show, Dr. Kyra Bobinet. Um, and let me tell you a little bit about Kyra. She's really devoted her life's work to cracking the code on why we engage in our health and healthful behaviors. She's a national speaker and a best-selling author on this topic. She's also the CEO and founder of Engaged In, a uh, neuroscience behavior design firm which uses neuroscience to make products and communications more engaging. Uh, Kyra has a, a really diverse portfolio of accomplishments. She's created uh, startups in healthcare, products, health apps, uh, big data algorithms, evidence-based programs in mind, body, and metabolic medicine. And uh, prior to forming her own company, she served as an executive at uh, Healthcare Payer, where uh, she designed large-scale large population health management and wellness interventions for Fortune 500 companies. As I mentioned before, she's an author. Uh, her book is Well-Designed Life, 10 Lessons in Brain Science and Design Thinking for a Mindful, Healthy, and Purposeful Life. And she's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Huffington Post, and PR. She currently co-teaches patient engagement and health design with Dr. Larry Chu at the Stanford School of Medicine. And uh, for her broad body of work, Kyra has received or did receive uh, in 2015, the Innovator Award from Harvard. Uh, she also received her master's in public health from Harvard University, and uh, she attended medical school at UCSF. Uh, when she's not geeking out on neuroscience and behavior change, you can find her uh, on her 160-acre training center in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It sounds wonderful. Kyra, I, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be uh, speaking with you on this podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Very excited to speak with you too, Zev. That's great. You know, Kyra, I, I was uh, thinking about you a lot, obviously, this week as I was preparing for this podcast. And, you know, with most of the guests uh, I've spoken to on the podcast, I can distinctly remember how I met them. And for some reason, I am completely blanking on how we were introduced. And do you recall, because I know we we both went to the Harvard School of Public Health, but I don't think um, we didn't, we weren't there at the same time, I don't think, and we were in different programs. No, you know, what I remember is you reaching out on LinkedIn and saying, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at how to be innovative in the, in the field, I mean, you know, cause you were, you struck me as an innovator from the beginning, you know, in terms of like your personal brand. And, and then ever since then, I think we had, uh, different ideas of how to connect up or, you know, visit or travel or, you know, things like that. We've never made it happen. So our relationship ever since has been virtual. We, we absolutely. Um, so we've just been talking to one another for, it's got to be two, three years at least. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, something like that. That's great. Um, well, and I've never had the opportunity to really explore with you your work. Um, and so I, I'm excited to do it. And I'm going to just jump in if that's okay with you. Yeah, bring it. Cool. So um, let me ask, let me start with this. Um, 
I want to turn to your book, uh, which I, I did read uh, probably now a year and a half or so ago and just reviewed. And I want to I want to read an opening description of the book that's on your website to, to give folks a little bit of background and then dive in with you on that. So here, here's a quote. For years, uh, my audiences have asked me where they can learn more about behavior change. In this book, I've curated what I have found to be the most helpful, useful concepts from decades of studying neuroscience and design thinking. The primary goal of this book is to empower you as, as the designer of your life. And then you go on to say it's the perfect guide uh, for designing the life you want to live. It empowers you to be the designer of your experience. And whether you want to build better habits, lose weight, improve relationships, overhaul your career, um, this will give you the scientific insights and the design skills that move you into a new levels of success and peak performance, end quote. So I think fundamentally for me, this is a really radically different way of thinking of behavior change, right? When we look at, right, I mean, when we look at the way, you know, early on we were taught um, it was more educational or psychologic, uh, you know, the motivational interviewing type stuff. This seems like a, a just a, a completely different way of thinking about behavior and behavior change and, and working with, with people and patients in that way. So can, can you tell me where, because I, I think it's important to really kind of create that, if it's true, to create that, that landmark and say, okay, here's what this is about. Here's how this is different. Um, and so if you tell us how, what does neuroscience and design thinking and design techniques have to do with behavior change? How did you, how did you come to that? And can you give us some examples of what that means? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you nailed it because, you know, from a very young age and even before medical school, you know, in the sort of, you know, high school, even, uh, I remember that sort of my quest in this life was why do people do what they do? And more importantly, why is it that they don't do what they say they want to do or what they know they should do, including myself? Oh, by the way, you know, what, what is this that we all kind of share? And that just kind of amplified in medical school, you know, when, or, or in clinical work, when you're dealing with people who really don't want to share the, the shame they feel around not losing the weight or not stopping smoking or, or not taking the medication almost so much that the social contract between the physician and the patient becomes you know, sorry for this reference, but, you know, don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. You know, like we, 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 we don't want to ask them because we know they're embarrassed to say what they haven't done almost to the point of people admittedly, a lot of physicians will switch or increase dosage or switch medications for a patient without first getting a baseline of how much they are actually taking the first prescription, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and not, and not unpacking the behaviors that are in the way. And so in my lifelong quest for behavior change and trying to, you know, iterate really on, on my own self, getting my own self to do things, I realized there was this, this kind of meta awareness that I started to have. And, and it was, it was this kind of realization that, oh, it's not CrossFit. It's not the, the cleanse, the seven day cleanse. It's not, uh, you know, NutraFast or it's not, you know, the name brands of the things that I might try or that other people may try that then we get tired of or that we graduate from because we do so well on it. We need, we need what's next, you mm -hmm. know, kind of like a game. What's the next level for me? It's, it's, it's that we 
design the, the very picking of these things. You know, it's a meta design perspective and mindset of what, what the story is of what I think I'm doing here. So if I'm the person who thinks that, oh, I'm, I'm in Weight Watchers and that's, I'm all about Weight Watchers. You know, we all go through phases of falling in love with our new thing, whether it's Zumba or our new gym or a new relationship even, or a new job or whatever it is. And then we know that it settles out after the honeymoon period. And in behavior change, as we currently understand it, we, we miss the fact that when we break up with that name brand thing, that Weight Watchers, that whatever was working for us, that we, we are just simply the person who's designing the next experience for ourselves. And if we see it that way, two things happen. One is we don't blame ourselves for, you know, not being good, a good person and continuing with that, that Zumba class or whatever that was, you know? Um, and the second thing is we become a lot more skilled at finding the next thing that's going to work for us. Wow. So I, you know, I do understand now the word, the meta word you use. So the idea is taking ourselves is, as I'm hearing, it's taking ourselves out of this idea that we are the activity that, um, you know, whether it's a diet or exercise regimen or something else and taking a step up and realizing we're actually the architect, we're the designer of, of all of that. And so not, not continuing that particular activity is not a failure. It's, it's almost like we tried this experiment with this and, and maybe, maybe, you know, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, maybe those things aren't meant to last. Maybe it's more around, you know, is it around, you know, discovering, is that the right thing for me? And maybe it was the right thing for a while, but I've got to move on to something else. And so our job is not to, to, um, believe that any one thing's got to work. It's actually to continue to create the opportunities to, to learn what works and to continuously adjust that. I'm, I'm just taking a shot in the dark with that, but is, is, am I getting close to, to your understanding what you're trying to? You nailed it. No, you, you totally nailed it because, you know, we, we are the designer. We are not the design because all designs fail. Every single design that you have will fail at some point, even walking. Mm-hmm. You know, for many of us at the end of our life, we will not be walking. Mm-hmm. We might be bedridden or we might be disabled in that way. And so, or, or we can't walk uphill or, or whatever it is. Right. So, so you can barely pick behaviors that will endure your entire lifespan, right? right? <laughs> Breathing is probably one, but, but even for those of us who have mm-hmm. certain conditions that, uh, cause breathing trouble, right? Um, that's not even a given. So it's just about having, placing our identity and who we think we are in the right part of the brain, so to speak, you know, that, that metacognitive state. Oh, and by the way, people who think like that, or we should say it the other way, people who succeed at changing their behaviors to the person think like this. It, it is the, the single biggest difference between people who succeed and people who flail in their behavior change efforts. And so what I'm trying to do is get everybody who's flailing, you know, to, to identify that, that, that piece, that, that, that mindset of being the designer and being the architect, as you say, and to look at it that way, because that's going to keep them ever trying, you know, that it's, it's a fail free, fail safe mode to be in. You, you can just eat up the world and not be worried about it. And, and, and it's so interesting that, you know, 
it's very domain specific too, because Zev, you know, somebody might be really, really amazing at studying and, and consuming information and test taking. And so they are completely the architect of their experience there, the designer of their experience, but then maybe they flip over into personal dating relationships and they are, you know, very, very remedial, you know, and, and have to figure out how to design that experience for themselves. So the way that we, our brains work, where we can over index in a particular strength area. And then in the weakness area, we can, we can get disappointed or feel like, why can't I do it over here? You know, a very public example is, is Oprah, you know, whom everybody loves and has been very public mm-hmm. about in the domain of eating, right. there's been a struggle, right? But in the domain of uh, changing people's lives and providing amazing experiences and opportunities and, and changing the world, there is complete and utter success and complete design thinking applied to that and, and the meta designer in that domain. I, I, you know, I, I think the, the idea of you're reframing this as not a psychological problem or not as a knowledge or educational problem is, has tremendous implications for healthcare. Uh, it, in reframing it as mm-hmm. a design challenge and, uh, you know, so it's not so much, well, I've got to psychologize you and figure out, you know, how to motivate you to do this, or I've got to educate you, or I've got to give you the knowledge or, you know, ability. The idea that it's, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm asking this, uh, I'm saying a statement to, to check in with you to see if this is, is what you're, you're saying. It, it seems to me that, that the challenge then in redefining it that way is how to train people to become designers and architects of, uh, of, I guess, a healthful life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, think about the clinical visit, right? So we spend our time with, you know, problem solution, you know, problem diagnostic solution plan, all that kind of stuff that, that whole sequence. What if we spent that 10, 15 minutes on figuring, helping to co-design a solution for actually picking up the prescription and taking it reliably? Because what we know when you go into people's homes is that people who, it's not an accident, you know, people who systematically take their medication, have it in a particular zone in their world, and they have all of their sort of accoutrements lined up there, and they have a rhythm and a system that works for them. And then again, just like any design, the system will break. Either they move or, you know, their their spouse who used to pick up the prescription uh, gets a different job in the other direction across town. And so now no, there's nobody to pick up the prescription mm-hmm. in the part of the system that was done for them. Uh, like those, those kinds of things. And, and almost, I feel like that where's where healing is going is to have these conversations around the how, how are you doing this? How is this working in your world? All the kind of occupational therapy kind of perspective and skill set around how can you get this to happen? How can you remind yourself? How can you get your own attention? How can you um, set up frictionless processes and, and systems by which this you don't have to spend mental energy on this, reinventing it as a one-off every single day, every single time, every single dose, right? And every single refill, right? And, and, and some of that is being 
somewhat picked up on by the system in terms of uh, automatic refills, you know, 90 day prescriptions, those kinds of things, mail order prescriptions, those kinds of things, just, just focusing on medication adherence alone. But there's a lot more to it that I think the provider community and the, the healthcare system community can offer by just changing the conversation to the right thing, which is if we made everybody this meta designer of their experience, then they're going to be more empowered. They're going to be more in control. Um, and they're going to be more successful at what, at, at even coming back from a relapse, for example. Yeah. You, you know what I love about this, uh, this reframe is that it's very, about a couple of things. One is you're borrowing from people who are successful. And I, I believe you when you say that, that people who are wildly successful do this approach. They design um, their behaviors, their the things around them so that they are successful and are constantly tweaking and redesigning. And in fact, I, I was just listening to someone online who is an internationally renowned person in, in you know, in this area of um, not just health, but in business. And, and he said the same exact thing. He said, it's, it's not about flogging yourself or trying to get yourself to do things. It's about setting up the system around you so that it's, it's, it's easier to do. It runs, it, it, it helps you mm-hmm. create those habits. And so, you know, it resonates with what you're saying. The other part that I really like a lot is that it's non-blaming. So if you tell me to do something and I can't do it, this, that's not the model. It's not about you telling me to do something or me trying to force myself to do something or convince myself to do something or, you know, and feel bad about it when it, it doesn't work. It's really about that stepping up and out of that, that whole model, um, of adherence or compliance, uh, and really into let's think about designing. And, and, and so if something doesn't work, we will find something else and we'll try it and, and iterate. And, and it, 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 and it's also constantly refreshing. Yeah. From the beginning, from the beginning, because, you know, if you, if you have a patient, let's say you have a day of patients and every single one of them leaves your, your clinic, your office, the the experience with you as saying, okay, I understand from Dr. Newworth that I'm going to try this because we, I agreed to it. I picked it first of all, and, and I helped to co-design, uh, how it could fit into my life, how it could fit into my day. Uh, every new behavior needs a location and a routine and a time that it happens. Otherwise, it's just left up to chance. Um, we, we, we need to not let people down by having them kind of make it up every single time, you know, and then feeling bad about themselves. So I leave there. I, Dr. Newworth and I make this agreement. We've kind of co-designed this. And Dr. Newworth said, hey, this is just a sample. If this doesn't fly within a day or so, if you see yourself not doing this thing, then do me a favor. Just it's broken. Not you. It's broken. Mm-hmm. We didn't pick the right thing. We, there's something we missed. You know, there's something else more powerful in your life or some way in which your schedule twisted and turned and, and threw this off. So don't even, don't even think about it. Just call me back or, you know, try to try to make an adjustment that you think will fit because it's not a matter of if it'll fail, it's when it will fail you. So, you know, certain designs that we come up with will, will last a a day. (laughs) Others will last a year, you know, but, but it, but setting that expectation that they're looking for where it doesn't fit, you know, not for lack of effort, but for, for just some other thing that disrupts them. Right. And then they're making the call in the field 
on whether they need to make a change or not, whether they want to persevere or whether they want to iterate on it. And you're empowering them to think of it that way. And people who think of it that way do not judge themselves and they come back from relapse so much faster. And and there's data behind that. You know, people who lose weight, who keep it off, absolutely their relapse periods are way shorter than people who regain. So it's really that critical window of the story you tell yourself and how, how much that, that discourages you and for how long that causes you to, to, to hate yourself and to, and to shy away from going into your, your doctor or, or your group or maybe your, your workout buddy or whatever. Um, it's just a lot of unnecessary drama that we can cut off with this, this mindset shift. Let me ask you, I, I want to ask you in a, in a moment the the how we do that in healthcare and, and stuff. But before we get to that, I just want to bookmark that that question for a second. You, There was another quote I came across as I was researching for this conversation. And here's a quote from you, and I love it. I, I, I think it's just so authentic to who you are and what you've been doing. Um, so, And here's in quotes you wrote, so here's the deal. I live to serve others. It gets me up in the morning. I want to free myself and others from the suffering we wallow in or actively deny every day. Everything I do, mm-hmm. this is you writing this, everything I do is driven by these two filters. Does what I'm doing reduce suffering? And is there a scientific basis for it? So, uh, and then you go on to say, uh, I'm obsessed with what causes us to behave and feel the way we do so I can be more beneficial to you. And so you mentioned the issue of suffering um, in, in that quote. There's a lot, but you mentioned the issue of suffering. And it just as you were talking, I was hearing that in, in your conversation. Um, again, when we talk about behavior change in the in the typical legacy ways that we've learned it, been taught to use it, use it in healthcare, suffering typically does not come into it as as uh, neither does neuroscience or design thinking for that matter so right so you're really right. really reframing this issue for us and i think in a very very honest real way and 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 clearly the issue of suffering in healthcare has been has come up quite a bit lately um you know tom lee who uh, uh, is a physician from the harvard you're right. He's, he's phenomenal. He's yes. at, 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 um, in the Harvard system as a physician. And yes. now he's at Prescani as a chief medical officer. He's written about it. Others are writing about it. Um, and so, so can you say something more about this? And I think you were starting to get into it, this issue of how this approach, um, alleviates suffering and for sure brings it to the fore. But can you say a little bit more about that? Cause I think it's really important. So, yeah, I, I have noticed, <laughs> noticed, uh, you know, I've, I've meditated for now coming up on 18 years. And what I notice about that is that no matter how much external success or, um, excitement or things working out or keynotes or books or you know, anything external to myself, I still suffer inside in the littlest ways. And, and, and fortunately the, the power of mindfulness meditation, those kinds of things is that it allows this metacognitive muscle to build over time to where you get better and better at both identifying and then releasing the, the grip holds on the suffering for the point of suffering. I'll, I'll say the pain point that then can lead to suffering, right? Cause one of my favorite terms of all time 
is this, uh, it's from Buddhism, this concept of the suffering of suffering. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm suffering that I'm late to a meeting and now I'm suffering from that suffering because I'm afraid that everybody hates me for being late to the meeting because I'm stuck in traffic or whatever. So, so there's, there's a scrape layer that we could scrape off of this, this self-talk, this, this judgment, this, uh, anxiety, you know, big issue this, these days is anxiety. Um, the way we're triggered, you know, um, the way that we kind of toggle back and forth with different things without consolidated attention are, is disrupting a lot of our well-being channels in the brain. So for example, um, Richie Davidson, one of my favorite neuroscientists has identified four well-being tracks like neural networks, distinctive and strongest neural networks in the brain. One of them is attention and focus. And that is our feedback loop for when I feel attention, when I feel focused, then I tell myself all is well, you're well. And when I'm not, when I'm frenetic, when I'm crazy, uh, that creates suffering. Right. And so in this approach of design thinking and also in understanding the neuroscience behind it, understanding how your brain works, both of those two things alleviate the tendency that we have to blame ourselves and to judge ourselves as a failure at X, whatever X is. Right. And so, you know, there's actually a a failure counter in the brain. And I cover this in, in chapter one of the book. Um, which is a free download, um, that you can tell people about. I don't know if you have show notes or anything like that. Um, but, but it's, it's this area called the habenula, which is, you know, a, a very teeny tiny <clears throat> and more recent discovery around brain function. And it's basically this failure counter. And so part of what is protective about this design mindset is that if I don't feel like I'm ever done iterating on what I'm trying, if I don't feel like it's a failure that I don't go to Weight Watchers anymore and that I've chose, I've figured out Zumba is better for me right now or something else is better for me right now, then my habenula never gets the, the idea that I have failed at anything. And the reason why that's important is that it has its hand on the motivation dial. So the habenula's job when it registers failure is to downturn and downregulate my motivation. It suppresses my motivation to do that same thing again. And, and it, evolutionarily, it's meant to keep us from touching the stove over mm-hmm. and over and over again like an idiot, right? But in this case, when we want to lose weight or when we want to stop smoking or when we want to stop procrastinating or we want to manage our time better or we want to stop yelling at our kids we are, it is our worst enemy because when we think we're trying something and we have a fixed goal, like I will no longer yell at my kids. And then we see ourselves yell at the kids. Then we blame ourselves. Then we feel like we failed at our goal. And then the habenula is like, "Mm, let's turn down the motivation to try that again. You know? And so this quitting, this, this, this relapsing, this, this not, not resuming activity, not resuming effort is all sort of neuroengineered. And, and by understanding that the brain does that, people tell me that it frees them from this thing they used to do to themselves where they would suffer because they felt like they failed and they felt either embarrassed or they felt like a hypocrite mm-hmm. or they felt like a failure. One of those three things. And they would stop trying. You know, that, first of all, that uh, explanation you just gave 
definitely illustrates to me the importance of neuroscience, how you're using your background in neuroscience uh, and neuroscience in general to really understand behavior and behavior change. Um, and, and it also explains to me why uh, when we, in the traditional way of behavior change, when I do something and I not so much, you know, the idea that something failed or not is, is, is made up, right? So we make up that, that construct that I tried this and I failed at it. it it's not working. Right. When we, when that happens, you're saying this part of the brain, um, uh, senses that the signal's there and it, it, it's, it then sort of downgrades our motivation, which is counterproductive. And so in, in this model of being a designer and an architect, and, and seeing things as an experiment that you tried and it's not you that's a failure. It's just that this thing was not the right design for the situation and the context mm -hmm. that, that bypasses the whole failure thing. And therefore your, your motivation. And I can yeah. see why in people who are, and this guy was telling you about, he's a, he's in business and he talks about people who are wildly successful in business and they don't see failures as failures. And it's not a mind game. It is actually, they just, right. They honestly don't see a failure as a failure. The rest of us would crump. We'd go to our rooms and cry and, and say, I'm, you know, I'm not going to yeah. continue being a business person. These other people, you know, they're, they're designers. They know what they're going for. They design it. This thing didn't work out. Okay. On to the next one. And so, and it's not, you know, it's what's exciting about your approach and this design thinking approach is again, it's not an issue of motivation and it's not an issue of trying to psychologize myself. It's an issue of seeing myself as a designer and architect. And in that mode, uh, you know, what's the failure? I, I, you know, maybe I selected the wrong thing and we'll, okay, we'll move on to another thing. I don't know, but it, it is, it is actually quite encouraging. So I, I, I actually now get what you're saying in a much better way. Thank you for, for sharing that. And it, yeah. And it's compassion. It's, it's a compassionate approach to oneself and it doesn't mean being soft. Cause I know that you're on the East coast and, I've been on the East Coast too. And um, for all the East Coast listeners, it's not about being soft. It's about understanding how the brain works and working with it instead of against it, which is what we're currently doing. Well, that gets, that gets me into the next question I, I wanted to ask, which was, was being a, an architect or a designer is not a soft thing. It is a demanding activity. Mm -mm. And, um, and so this idea if, if, if trying to transpose this in, and I'm imagining uh, practicing physicians listening to this conversation or uh, leaders and, and asking themselves a the question, well, you know, how, how would you start to train providers or coaches or systems at the level of systems, whether it be provider systems or, you know, payer systems, how do you, how do you create this reframed, you know, behavior, behavior change as design, uh, neuroscience informed design thinking. And how would, how would you do that? I mean, have you done that? Are you doing that? Yeah, we are. Um, there's a lot of different things we do. Uh, obviously we, we help design products programs. We're also building a, an engine that's kind of neuroscience based, um, according to how our brains see things and perceive of them. And so helping people to, uh, set up practice. Uh, we call them behavior sprints, uh, where they do uh, a sprint of seven days and they practice a particular behavior and then they learn from it. You know, what did you learn from that? Well, I learned that, uh, it was too ambitious. It didn't fit into my, uh, life demands, uh, where I have to take my kids to soccer every day or, or I have to, um, you know, see 14 patients a day or, 
or those kinds of things. And so, um, those, where it starts to me is being able to help people to iterate on it and, and develop a language around that and understand how the brain works around it. And that's something we do in our company every day. For example, if somebody sends a model or, or a design to me and says, Hey, this is my first draft, that kind of thing. And we have this sort of safe language around, Oh, well, this is good, but over here, let's iterate on that a little bit more. And iterate is a good word, you know, in our culture. And so if you can, if you can create a culture around what you're doing, uh, to, to make iteration and, and Facebook has this saying, you know, fail fast, which I think is a little bit off in terms of the language around it because, because then, but, but it really is be making a shame-free zone for trying things and having them not work out so well. You know, so rapid iteration is another term here in Silicon Valley. Um, and, and it's all these things are really just trying to quiet the part of our minds, our brains that would otherwise stand up and judge and then thwart and halt our efforts around trying to change behavior. Because if people can get past that, they are smart enough that they are uh, inventive enough and, and they're creative enough to, and also understand feedback loops enough to make the adjustments they need. The only thing that gets in people's way is not intelligence, uh, that they know what they should do. It's, it's, it's the persistence of effort without that judgment with, with a lot of self-compassion to get through the learning curve of pattern recognition and what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And these are just little, I call them Dumbo feathers, you know, Dumbo had a crow's feather, which, you know, you know, was a placebo effect for him to try to fly, you know, and then he, then he flew and then he, then he dropped the feather and was like, right. Oh my gosh, I can fly anyway. Right. And so, and so these, these are just kind of mental training excuses, if you will, to do the thing that you innately can do and to get past your own, get some escape velocity from your own weightiness of self-judgment. So, I mean, I'm bought in. I, I, I think this is a, a much better way of understanding, uh, behavior change and, and patient engagement. And so my, my question though is, you know, and, and even one of the things you, I think in a talk you gave recently this past June, uh, the America's health insurance plans, you said, you know, we've learned more about the brain and behavior in the past five years than in the previous 5,000 years. And so, you know, and it offers the potential and power to reach influence and improve health and well-being at scale. It is a quantum leap, as you said, to really transform the industry. Um, but it, it, you also go on to say that it's really the lag is in translating the science into practice. And so I, I, I have um, very little doubt. I mean, I, I really believe this this is a much better way to to help people, uh, help patients engage in behavior change and in healthful behaviors across the board, whatever they may be at whatever stage they may be at, uh, in dealing with health and illness. My question is, you know, you're, you're an expert in this and I, I would love to hire you and, and have people hire you and, and your colleagues, but most physicians, most coaches, health coaches, if not the vast majority are not, are not behavior change specialists. They're not design people. So they don't know design techniques and design principles, and they don't have your background in neuroscience. So if you were going to work with a, 
and you have worked obviously with a large uh, payer in the past, a national payer, size payer. How would you create a program so that providers that that this could reach a million patients, two million, five million people, uh, and you could have yeah, thousands yeah. of providers and, and provider teams working as designers and co-designers and coach designers helping? Do we have to bring in people who have design background who are then informed by the neuroscience of behavior? How, how would you do that so that it could actually scale, as you said in this in this talk you gave a few months ago? Exactly. So our own efforts, uh, you know, that, that's why I made the investment of building out a training center um, and, and doing it in nature also, by the way, uh, helps with uh, priming the brain in a specific way uh, to let one's guard down or to open one's mind up and, and those kinds of things. So that's all very much by design as well. And, and so we're having events. Um, the next one we have is January 6th with uh, David Eagleman, uh, well-known uh, neuroscientist, uh, PBS, The Brain uh, series that he developed, uh, best-selling author. And, and we'll have different events like this in the coming year and in the coming years. And I'm hoping that by serving the innovators, you know, people like yourself, you know, we've talked about this in, in terms of your thought leadership in the world. Um, if we serve the innovators, those are the people who actually change their own ecosystem. So there's one, what I've noticed is that there's one, at least one major one in each organization. You know, there's one at Cleveland Clinic, there's one at Harvard, there's one, there, there's, they're everywhere. You know, there's one in Kansas, there's, there's, they're everywhere. And if those people can come together and kind of cross train their expertise with neuroscience and with design thinking, whatever they're strongest or weakest on, then then we have kind of a full, a full set, you know, they're flush with skills and uh, ways to amplify their instincts. What I've noticed is that really good physicians, really good uh, product people, really great executives and innovators, they all kind of work intuitively and instinctively and they're effective. They just don't know why what they're doing is working and therefore, by not knowing the mechanism of action of what they're doing, they get caught up in what's the, the form of it, you know, and, and then they try to turn on the form of it. Like, oh, if I put together a patient outreach program, then every other topic I put through that patient outreach program will be appropriate. Well, maybe not for hospice, maybe not. It's a different, you know, emotional profile that people are dealing with. And so, you know, hammer and nail, you, not everything's a nail, right? And so if they, if they have this other set of, you know, design thinking, neuroscience, and they understand the, the operant brain science that's happening, then they will be even more skillful at developing and tweaking and iterating and even imagining a new program for the new use case of hospice that doesn't fit everything else. And they continue to innovate and they continue to teach and spread other people, uh, that, that it's this mindset shift, um, that we need to teach. So, so that's what I'm hoping, you know, as one little puny person on the planet, um, I hope that by, by sharing knowledge in this kind of more, you know, scalable way that we start to have a whole army of good people who can carry that mission forward. And I, and I, I have absolute trust in the, the good natured, uh, humans that are in healthcare that can carry that forward. You know, it's, it's funny you said 
that about people who are successful doing it probably intuitively. And I, I was having the same exact thought. I think about really good physicians uh, and nurses that I've seen work and intuitively they have, and I wouldn't have even prior to understanding design thinking, I wouldn't have even called it that. Um, but you, you see them, you know, say things like, Oh, we tried that. It, it, it didn't work. Let's move on to this. And so they, they, they probably use it for themselves in their own life and their own success. And they, they're using it with their patients. Um, but this, as you say, this actually now makes it explicit. You can, you know, use it more powerfully. You could use it in a more organized way. You can teach it. You can use the language that helps others understand what it is you're doing and what they're doing to avoid the suffering, as you were saying, and the sense of failure, um, which is highly demotivating as well. So I, I, it seems to me what you're doing in, in some sense is creating um, disciples, creating people who have this and can bring it back to their organizations and their institutions. And my guess is you would need teams to do this to begin. And again, design thinking is, is making some inroads in, in healthcare. It's clearly used in other industries. And even now it's, it's being used in healthcare to a certain extent, uh, but it's used for more for processes, you know, so to develop programs or processes. And what you're doing, it seems to me is, is now taking that same design thinking informed by neuroscience and using it to actually not create programs just, but actually to help people change behaviors. And what else is there? I mean, you know, really what else is there um, besides behavior or brain? You know, it, it all comes back to uh, everything we're facing on the planet right now is, um, you know, how it comes from the yeah. human brain and, um, you know, how, how we harness that for good and, and not, not destruction and, and not, not bad and not harm. And so, you know, yeah, I, th I, I want to correct the idea of disciples. <laughs> um, I don't see myself as a guru in any sense. I see myself as a, um, a caretaker of, uh, discipline around science and a caretaker of the discipline around, you know, design thinking and creative approaches. And, and I, it really does me good that, that, you know, the, the IDOs of the world have, have really done a great job of representing and, and promoting design thinking in so many different contexts. And, uh, they're amazing people. And I'm, I'm so glad that that, that layer is being deposited, you know, and, and picked up on and spread throughout the healthcare ecosystem. And separately, there's this sort of Ariellis and the, you know, BJ Foggs and, you know, on the behavioral uh, science side of things kind of, you know, and then neuroscience is, is a little bit more esoteric, hasn't come into its own yet, um, in terms of applicable, you know, uh, behavior change. Uh, this, you know, I, I think what we're doing is probably one of the first people who are taking it from that perspective. Uh, but, but I really see it as a, as a larger ecosystem or a tribe of people who are all related, who can, uh, really understand from one another mm -hmm. and, and become stronger through again, cross fertilization of their knowledge. And so I'm hoping to be a convener of that conversation, uh, to participate in promoting it, to help clarify, uh, and also hold a certain rigor, uh, because I think that, you know, design thinking lacks rigor mm -hmm. and, you know, behavioral science and, and neuroscience can lack imagination. And so those two in combination kind of cancel out each other's weaknesses. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, no, that's that's great. And I'm really glad you punctuated this issue when you said, what else is there? I, I completely agree with you. When we look at healthcare today, I, I think the single biggest issue, and actually it's not just what I think, it's what, what the evidence is showing us is, is actually behavior. Um, and whether that's that behavior is influenced by uh, sociodemographic or socioeconomic uh, determinants of health, uh, whatever it's influenced by, it all boils down to to what we all do as individuals. Well, you know how we feed ourselves, how we behave, how we treat each other, how we treat ourselves, uh, physical activity, uh, whether we you know use substances that are harmful. So it, it is it is the single biggest lever we have, and everything that we do around that, which in healthcare we we pay so much attention to so many things, and yet this. One most critical aspect of health and healthcare is, um, you know, deserves a lot more attention. And I, so I think I, I'm, I'm glad that you, you really said what you said. And, and I think what you're doing is really, uh, much needed in terms of uh, really, I mean, assisting us all. I mean, I, you know, I think of all the physicians and nurses and PAs and everyone else who's involved in direct patient care every single day and the frustration we have with trying to help people, uh, as well as people's frustration and trying to help themselves. And so this is, this is really to the point. I mean, this is at the core of healthcare. Yeah. I would say also our, um, our tools around that are really outdated. I mean, you look at med- medical training, you look at nursing training, you even look at health coaching training and uh, like take health coaching, for example, all of the tools that are being used, uh, not that they're bad, but they were all developed in the 1970s and eighties. So we haven't developed a new, curricula even, a new conversation since learning all of this stuff for decades about the brain and behavioral psychology and Kahneman even, you know, all of that has not made its way into coaching mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, clinical care in those kinds of uh, use cases. So I did, you know, last year, one of my passion projects is kind of neuroscience-based coaching. And I'm, I'm hoping that I can find uh, the right sort of, you know, uh, soil for that seed, uh, someday soon. But, um, but I had this idea of like, this is what's needed and these are the frontline people. And if they don't, you know, if they're not using this stuff, like who else will? And so to scale to the scale question, that's one way that I would like to see it scale. I would like to see people kind of take up the the cause around, you know, medical student, uh, training, uh, around nursing training, around health coaching training. Cause these are people that, you know, set the tone, of what patient care is and, and how, uh, to help people versus not. Right. And, and they're being asked to do things that they're not being equipped to do. Yeah. I mean, they're using old tools that are, are completely outdated and, in, you know, for the most part, ineffective. Um, so you're really, I guess another way to, to think about what you're doing is you're really tool, retooling providers with, you know, in, in terms of behavior change. Um, yeah, I mean it'll happen. It's just a matter of, we get to choose how quickly it happens. Right. And and yeah, well I would say every day we wait is, you know <laughs> I won't complete the sentence, I'll let people do that. Um, <laughs> so uh you you were can are you okay with me saying what payer you worked for? Yeah, that's fine. Go yeah. Ahead. So you worked for Adna. Uh mm-hmm. and when you were there, you were a physician executive responsible for, I believe, wellness and wellness programs. And 
you really had in terms of, you know, kind of researching your background, it seems like you really were the nidus, the catalyst, the thought leader behind um, uh, Aetna's uh, very now well-known um, focus on, on wellness and, and, and behavior. Up till now, I really had thought that uh, uh, Mark Bertolini, who's the CEO and has been the CEO for quite some time, um, who, who I have tremendous respect for, uh, uh, you know, I thought that he was the brainchild behind it. But I, I get the sense from reading through the literature I've read through that you really were behind that and responsible for that. So I have, I have a couple of questions. Um, I, the biggest question is, how, how did you sell this? to a large payer organization, because as you know very well from working within a payer and, and you know, my experience of uh, working with employers and, and, and payers and provider groups for years is that, you know, what sells fundamentally is we're going to lower your costs, okay, because the cost of care, everyone knows the cost of care are too high. It's just, it's just unsustainable. It's, it's a huge imperative uh, and, and, it, and it's, a, it's the right thing to do to lower the cost of care appropriately. And so... Right. That's a driver, obviously, quality and quality improvement. Um, those metrics are drivers as well. But how, how would you sell this? How did you sell it then? And, and how did you how would you sell it now if you were if we had, a, you know, uh, executives from provider groups or large integrated delivery networks or ACOs or payers or employer coalitions? How would you sell this? Because the return on investment, again, what I've come across is the return on investment takes so long that it doesn't make sense for them financially. So I'm sort of curious as, as to your thoughts on that and your experience with it, right? Your experience with it now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing what I think are a couple different questions in there. And, and the one I want to grab onto first, because I think that's, you know, if, if someone's invested the time at this point in this interview and is in the, into the long form, which I totally am too, I listen to two hour long podcasts. Um, they are, they are really a change maker, you know? So, so now we're only speaking to change makers, innovators, cause that's the only people that would stay tuned into this particular conversation for this long. Uh, so what I would say is the question I'm hearing is how do you make change in an organization that is otherwise recalcitrant, that is otherwise bureaucratic, that was otherwise has a lot of detractors, which we, we don't often talk about, but there's detractors, there's naysayers, there's the Eeyores, in any organization. And, you know, that, you know, they're lovely people. Um, we had one, uh, you know, person that, you know, now gone from that organization, but we affectionately called him Dr. No, <laughs> because he was, um, the one person you could always count on that would shoot down any idea you had, no matter what or how good of an idea it was. And so, um, it's, it's really something to try to have, the psychological fortitude, the emotional fortitude to get past all the doctor knows in your world. And, and, um, cause it's so much easier to sit there and take pot shots at somebody's idea than to be the person who, uh, puts forward the new fresh idea. So a couple of things. One is, um, if you have any power control over anybody, uh, one of my favorite policies to implement at the beginning of like say workshops or that kind of thing is, no whining and whining in the adult sense is not like a baby whining where they're like, you know, they, they, they whine with their voice. Adult whining is uh, criticizing something without offering a way out without offering a solution. Cause now mm -hmm. you're just whining. 
You're, you're, you're not, you're not being a part of the, the solution. And so I take away people's ability in the beginning. I design it to where the social norm and the agreement of this conversation is that you can't do that to me and you can't do that to my ideas. Right. And, and that, that's, that's a design. You're designing the, the, the ground rules from get go. Right. Don't let that happen to you. Like, unless you design something, it's going to, it'll design you, right? You get a design life. It, otherwise it'll design you and, it, and it's on you. It's, it's your fault that you didn't think to design it. So always think about every conversation as your architectural design. Also, don't just trust yourself into those situations. Think about it strategically, tactically. The conversation with Mark, for example, um, was a long time coming. I kept hearing about, you know, he was president at the time, uh, that Mark was into yoga, you know, but he didn't care at all about mindfulness. And I knew that yoga would not be scalable in an organization as would not the, the mindfulness based stress reduction, which is so famous that Dr. John Kabat-Zinn formed, you know, as, as the kind of, you know, uh, flagship program in this area that got all the clinical efficacy data and things like that. So I had to rework the model so that it fit the constraints of the environment in which it was going into. So that, that's, that's design thinking. And I had to work up a business case, a business plan, a revenue plan, and all of that stuff for uh, this particular product to survive. And I did that for every single product idea or curriculum idea or revision that we had to do because wellness as a grab bag of, of things has a very bad reputation. Some people call it a faith-based, <laughs> a faith-based approach, you know, uh, where you have to have faith in it for it to work. And to some degree, they are absolutely right. You know, if, if I just do a steps program or I do challenges at work or I, or I do whatever little, you know, gamified, you know, rewards, incentives, those, those things are very external rewards oriented and they have a shelf life. And if you don't know what that shelf life is, then you'll be surprised when it takes a downturn and, and you won't know how to revive it or to get it to a, a kind of a clinical efficacy level. And the reason why I was successful at that is I would do all my homework on the science side, see what would be clinically efficacious in this case, stress reduction you know, looking at things that showed clinical efficacy in stress reduction, bringing those over, adapting those models, adapting them to fit the constraints of the environment, building up a business case, and then making that my pitch. And that's what succeeded to bring people on board because people need to check the box of their heart and they need to check the box of their head. And you have to give them is your job as the designer, as the innovator to offer a very complete package around that. Yeah, that was very helpful. And, uh, I think, uh, good advice for, for those of us who are, are in that game all the time. So from, uh, and, and I guess my question is checking off the box of the, of the financial issues. And that could be the brain part you were talking about. Um, I mean, it seems to me, you know, not to answer my own question, but it seems to me that it's the ROI may not be immediate with behavior change. In some cases, it may be when we're talking about taking a medication um, and depending on what you're taking the medication for, the return on investment can be actually weeks to months. Um, so 
pretty darn quick in terms of preventing bad things from happening, hospitalizations, ED visits. So, so clinically as well as financially, uh, cost effectively, it, it makes a lot of sense to, to focus on behavior change and to invest in it. And then it, it clearly has long-term benefits in terms of, you know, reducing hospitalizations and higher cost issues, uh, uh, you know, needing medications and treatments and therapies. Um, so, I mean, do you, do you engage in those kinds of conversations? Do you find yourself as you're talking to, uh, to groups or uh, executives, how, how do you, do you navigate the, how do you navigate those conversations? So if I understand the question, it's, you know, how do you stack the ROI in terms of temporal uh, returns, right? Yes, correct. So, so there's always, you know, lead indicators, laggard, you know, lag indicators, um, things that'll come, you know, it's just like planting a garden. There's things that'll mature quickly and there's things that'll uh, take a longer turn. And so part of the design is to figure out what can you, can, what can you give them as process metrics in the beginning, you know, again, like participation, engagement, uh, you know, patient satisfaction, uh, patient retention, like those kinds of things that, that are going to move faster. You know, ER visits moves very quickly, um, to, to urgent care. If that's the, one of the things, uh, those kind of single behaviors that can just, you can flip a switch and they can move the needle to, that buys you time to make your case for the longer play, right? And the longer play is harder because, it requires more sophisticated designing and you have to keep at it and, and, and follow kind of a rigor around, uh, you know, lean methodology, which is another thing that I advocate for, you know, rapid iterations, uh, a lot of different iterations with patients to figure out what's going to work, you know? And meanwhile, those that are judging you above you, um, will be satisfied with these kind of, you know, different courses, like the appetizer course, the, <laughs> the palate cleanser course of these metrics, these, these ROI pieces that you're delivering back to them, um, at various touch points and hopefully buying a little more trust, buying a little more patience from them, uh, that you're going for this longer, mm-hmm. this longer and bigger ROI. So do you have in your work, um, and I don't know if you've been working with payers or providers lately, do you have examples of, um, programs or behavior change initiatives where it's led to um, uh, demonstrable changes, metrics, as you were just alluding to, and then outcomes in terms of ROI? Yeah. <laughs> um, we are under uh-huh. a lot of NDAs, and so I can't uh, speak to a lot of the results of our programs and designs and products because of the uh, confidential nature of our work, but I can speak to a couple of things generically. So for example, there was one, um, app that was designed around, uh, and, and being, being issued at a very premier organization, uh, premier hospital system, one of the top three. And the, uh, the company that was designing this app was trying to figure out what, you know, what do we need to do to get a differentiated but effective efficacy-based uh, app because we need to go into clinical studies with this and, and measure it in RCT format. And so we looked at it and we realized that, you know, they had paid a lot of money to get uh, design firms to look at this and to, and this is where I'm, I'm kind of picking a little bit on uh, design thinking because 
the design firms had done a really wonderful job just designing something that was beautiful and it was useful and it, you know, end to end, you would get through it in, in, in a, in a minute, right? It, it didn't take a lot of time. It wasn't a lot of friction in it, but what they had missed was a major brain heuristic. Uh, and a heuristic is a shortcut in the brain that, that we do to save time, which is that if you call your pain app, pain app, uh, you will elicit pain in the patient because they're tracking their pain, which is what the physician wants them to do. But we needed to figure out a way for them to track their pain without using the word pain. And so we changed the entire feature set around this app and they were able to, uh, get the deal with the top hospital system. And, and this pain clinic, which is a world renowned pain clinic was thrilled at this, this innovation that they brought to the table, uh, that really solves a problem that they noticed that their patients were having and their, their patients were, um, you know, suffering from. And it was a lot easier to use and it was a lot less harmful to use while still delivering the, the clinical conversation that the, that needed to happen between the clinicians and the patients. That's great. So that, that's, that's one of my favorite stories because it, it really helped everybody. That's great. I, I, we are getting at the hour mark and I have a couple more questions I, I, that are burning questions I want to ask you. So I'm hoping you, we could hang in there for a couple more minutes. Um, so I had, uh, sure. asked you about topics you want to talk about and, and in, uh, in a sort of a pre-dialogue, uh, questionnaire I sent you and you wrote two things, which really, uh, just, I, I'm, I'm really interested in hearing what you mean by them. The first was, um, let's take, let's take one at a time. You wrote, um, in the land of distraction, those will, with focus will lead everyone else. Can, what do you mean by that? Well, simply that, you know, since the advent of the iPhone in 08 and even before that, the Blackberry, we're living in a time where fast is no longer going to get you ahead. Paradoxically slow is now the new fast. And what I mean by that is, you know, there was a time when going faster, you could beat people to things. You could, you could, um, you know, get, get volume out. Now that, that is a commodity. Fast is a commodity. Everybody can do fast. Everybody can do, um, you know, speed ordering, speed, uh, you know, just a secure, securing, uh, credit cards, uh, whatever the use case is, we've, we've built technology that can kind of turn things around in that way. And now what's, what's in vogue or what, what's beating, um, as a, as an advantage, as a market advantage is all of the slow stuff. It's, it's connection. It's human connection. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. the, the stuff we miss from going so fast. It's, it's the deep thinking. It's the thinking through a problem in a more comprehensive way that is defensible. That is, as you were talking about with your previous example, like thinking through the ROI evolutionary chain right? Of a particular product that then allows that product to come to full fruition instead of being cut off in its childhood and, and, and sent, right. you know, to, to retire, you know? Um, so, so that is my observation is that now innovation and innovators who take the time out, uh, to really slow down and focus because I don't care how smart you are. Your brain cannot come up with new ideas if you are in back-to-back patients or if you're in back-to-back meetings 
all day, every day. And then at night you're catching up on charts or you're catching up on your, you know, not returned emails that night, you know? So, so we have to now design, uh, for metacognition mm-hmm. time and being able to really, really think of things comprehensively and deeply. Wow. I, I just want to thank you for that. That was really important, uh, to hear. And as, as someone who has spent years doing exactly what you just described, you know, uh, swinging from meeting to meeting, uh, trying to catch emails in between, juggling dozens of things and catching up at nights on weekends. Um, that is, uh, and, and seeing everyone else around me do the same exact thing. It, uh, when you stop to think about it, it actually is a little frightening. Uh, and so this idea that you're talking about of really redesigning how we work as organizations, how we work as teams, how we work as people, that, that seems to be one of the most insightful, uh, understandings and recommendations I've heard in quite some time. So, um, so thank you. Um, and, and let me ask you this, the other, other topic you wrote, uh, back to me was you, you wrote, there's only two rivers of money. Which one are you in? And so what do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm, so I'm growing an organization and, um, we're, we're growing quickly and, the, and there's always going to be temptations to draw money from, you know, the river of greed, I'll call it the river of, uh, you know, so, so I came up with this kind of concept of like two rivers, right? One river has, uh, benefit and healing and, and love and compassion and, uh, long suffering and effort and discipline in it. And the other one is greed and, you know, fast money and, uh, lack of integrity and causing harm and treating people as objects. And at any given moment, you're either drawing from one or the other of those, of those sources of water mm-hmm. as an organization, as a professional. Um, you know, it could be a moment to moment toggle between those two. It could be, um, just a way of making sure that you are aligned as an organization, uh, end to end to provide benefit because diagnostically it is not a surprise if you are drawing from the river of greed and harm that you're not having the healing benefits that you, uh, have in your mission, right? Yeah. If, 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 if you're, you know, scorch earth consuming all of your physicians and burning them out on your way to, uh, greed or, or fear even, you know, out of fear of, of dissolution or, 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 you know, the organization failing or whatever, it's just, it's just a way of creating a mental model for ourselves about, you know, end to end, what's the integrity of what we're doing and being able to predictively provide healing experiences at the end of that river has everything to do with which river you're in. Yeah. No, I thank you again for that. And, uh, in really, really, uh, uh, authentic in, in how you delivered it, um, as well as, uh, the message itself. So I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, ask you one last question. I'm going to leave it a little bit open. My, my question to you is what was the best piece of advice you were ever given and what are your, what, are, what final thoughts do you have that you'd like to 
you know, key take home points you'd like to leave with us today? Yeah. The, the best advice that I was ever given was it's not about you. You know, there, there was a, there was an executive that came to, uh, our public health school, uh, Harvard. He was one of our mentors for our thesis projects. And he was talking about how on, you know, when you get into a professional environment and you're working with others and you're trying to promote change, you're trying to get something done, or, or let's say you succeed, <clears throat> you can't be worried about getting credit for that. It's not about you. It's about, it's about the accomplishment itself. It's about the team that, that has, has done it together, you know, and, and if you're so small minded that, that you have to like, you know, try to get notoriety or, or you know, tr try to get that attention, then you're going to basically ruin it. You know, you're going to ruin the whole experience for everybody. Um, and I find that to be true. You know, if, if you act in a way that is with the greater sort of vision in mind, it kind of goes back to that metacognitive state, then the right thing happens. Like, you know, you, you'll be okay. It's okay to me that, that Mark Berlini is the front man for, you know, my efforts, you know, machinating behind the scenes because you know what? I got a lot more out of it than he ever will, you know, because I got <laughs> skills. I got the understanding. I got the know-how of having been through the fire of that experience that then I can pass on to other people. And he has his, his goodness of what he does in the world, you know, also. So, so it's just, it's just about being, being accepting of, of the greater good that's happening and not being so concerned with yourself. Mm. That's great. So I want to thank you so much for your, your wisdom and sharing this and, and really has given me a different understanding of the work that I thought I understood you were doing um, in terms of applying design thinking. So, uh, and I think it's so critically important and I, I hope that people are listening and, uh, and going to take some action. So I want to thank you, uh, Kyra, for, 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 you know, sharing with us today and for the work you're doing. Um, and uh, I, I would like to actually leave the, um, the listeners with uh, a story that you told in your book. That's okay with you. Yes. Um, and, uh, this is actually the last interview I'll be conducting this year until, uh, until next year, which will be in a, in a couple of weeks, a few days from now. So I want to leave folks with a gift and, uh, and demonstrate my gratitude to, to being allowed to do this podcast and, and to really sharing this. So this is a story you wrote about. It's a native American elder who's sharing some wisdom with his grandson. Mm -hmm. And it goes like this, um, the, uh, the elder says to his grandson, uh, grandson, uh, a great battle rages inside of me every day. And the grandson says, what do you mean, grandfather? Grandfather responds, there are two wolves that fight ferociously for power. One is a mean wolf. He knows anger, greed, gossip, jealousy, and revenge. He is proud and untrustworthy. The other is a wolf of lightness. He lives in joy, peace, generosity, love, and laughter, and he brings out these gentle qualities in others. Every day, these wolves fight with each other. And everyone has these two wolves living inside of them. So the young boy thought for a while, and then he asked his grandfather the question, tell me, grandfather, which wolf will win? And the grandfather looked into the boy's eyes and replied, grandson, the wolf you feed. And um, I think this is uh, very much along the lines of the two rivers you talked about, Kyra. Yeah. And um, 
So my wish uh, is for everyone who's been listening to this podcast, um, I would like to wish everyone really a happy and healthy new year and a year in which we collectively feed the gentle wolf. Yeah. Keep going, people. Keep going. You're doing good stuff. <laughs> So, Kyra, it's, it's been just a, an immense pleasure and got so much out of it and uh, hope we have a chance to do this again. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you.